This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And we've got a very easy topic this uh, week. Yeah, well. Israel. Your people. Yisrael. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, well, you, you, I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. how's, how's it go? Yisrael. Yes. Yeah. Like with a Y. Yeah, like with a Y. Y-I-S. Yes. Yeah. Not, yeah. That's not English. But anyway. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we, yeah, we're talking about Israel again. It's the second time in two years. Aren't you lucky? Um, we, well, yeah, I suppose. And for particular reasons, because it's in the news. Because Donald Trump moved the, what you call it? The yeah, embassy. moved the embassy. There's some stuff Cape going Town on. Won't use Israel. I mean, Cape, if Cape Town are using the desalination plants, they're just, uh, you know, funding the apartheid state of Israel. Yeah. So they can't win there. Mm. And we just thought it would be stuff a good idea. Stuff going on in Europe. Right, yeah. right. And we just thought it would be a good idea to get a journalist who actually lives there to tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So our guest this week is Lahav Harkov. She is a journalist at the Jerusalem Post. Um, you can also find uh, some clippings and uh, some of her work on YouTube, and she does give uh, lectures uh, if anyone is interested in, in, in uh, uh, sort of hitting her up for those. Uh, and uh, we've uh, got her on the line. Hi, Lahav. Uh, are you on the line? Yes. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, really do appreciate it. Uh, Thank you and, for inviting uh, me. One of our guests, uh, recently we've had lots of guests who are in different time zones, so you're at least in the same time zone, which is great. Yeah. Um, so morning in South Africa, morning in Israel. And, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, we wanted to get you, you onto the show because – um, you write some really interesting stuff. Um, your 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 um, reporting is is really interesting in terms of what you're covering in Israel. Um, you specifically uh, based around uh, the Knesset, the Israeli Parliament. Yeah, I mean that's that's my my official title. My job is that I'm like the Knesset, I'm a parliamentary reporter for the Jerusalem Post. Um, on you know online. Um, and sometimes I, I freelance for other publications, so I, I branch out a little more. But I, you know, I write about Israel. It's where I live. Yeah. Um, and have you just a bit of background? Have you born there, lived there your whole life? Um, so I was born in the U.S. to uh, an Israeli mother and an American father. Uh, and I came to Israel straight after high school. So I've been living here my whole adult life. Mm. Uh, and I spent a lot of my childhood in Israel, a lot of summers here. And I grew up speaking Hebrew. So I, I felt very Israeli uh, before I came. Yeah. What, what do you think, just a matter of interest, because you've, you've had both. Uh, you would have grown up in America then as a kid. Uh, and, yes. and, and I, as an adult, have, have lived your life in, in Israel. What do you think are the sort of commonalities between those two countries? Because the a lot of people do move between the two. Um, obviously, a lot of Jews move between the two, but uh, there's a lot of uh, good relations, really, between those two countries. What, what do you think informs that? Yeah, I think that the two countries are uh, built on a lot of similar values. Um, they're both countries that really, really love freedom and liberty as a value. You know, that they they believe strongly in giving people free choice, freedom of expression, um, and that these are the sorts of values that they were built on. And, and I think that they're both countries that were built and founded by people 
who had been persecuted because of their religious backgrounds. And mm. so they really, those values are really deeply ingrained in them. Um, and that, that's on a political level, you know, but I think that it also reflects in society. Um, you know, I think that those are things that, that you see very strongly in both the U.S. and in Israel. Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously, you know, the, the people will hear you say something like, uh, uh, Israel values freedom. And of course, in the media, they read things that say quite the opposite. Um, so uh, depending on what media you're reading, but certainly in a South African media sense, there's very little good stuff written about Israel. Um, yeah, I think that there's an unfortunate misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, you know, of the situation at large, which I, I don't know if you want me to go back and start describing the whole history here. Mm. But um, you're welcome I to describe that, some of it. I mean, I'm sure our listeners could do with the information. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'll just say um, my, my husband's South African. He, he grew up in South Africa mm. and then, like me, has been living his adult life in Israel and his parents live here in Israel as well. But um, we visited South Africa and I have a you know, I mean, I, I don't live there. I'm not South African myself, but I have some level of familiarity yeah. sort of with the media, with the politics, I think more than the average Israeli or American. Mm. Um, and I think that there's this unfair sort of apartheid comparison that's made between um, Israel and South Africa mm. that is completely disingenuous. And it's it's just brought up, I, I think it, it began by activists who, you know, are opposed to Israel for different reasons and they, they latched onto this phrase. But yeah. honestly, I think that South Africans who, who suffered under apartheid, you know, which is the, the vast majority of South Africans, they should be more outraged by people trying to you know, take advantage of their suffering and twist it for their own needs. But in any case, I'll explain why I think that it's twisted. Yeah. Um, first of all, in the state of Israel, in sovereign state of Israel, there are equal rights for all citizens, regardless of their ethnic or religious background. Um, and, you know, when you think about the apartheid system and when you think about the situation of Arabs living in Israel, it's just totally, totally different. I mean, we have... Members of parliament, more than 10% of our parliament, I think it's about 15% of our parliament, um, are Israeli Arabs. Now, it's not necessarily proportionate to their numbers in society. I know people ask that they're like, but 20% of Israel is Arabs. But it's, you know, has to do with voting participation rates. But still, it's, it's close to their proportion in society as their representation in parliament. Now, we know in apartheid, there were no black people in parliament. And any of those segregate, any of that segregation doesn't exist. You know, there are mixed Jewish Arab schools. A lot of schools are separate, but that's by choice. There are still mixed schools. There's no law against mixing. Um, there, the hospitals are completely mixed. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been taken. You know, I've had an Arab doctor take care of me, or you know, and I gave birth. There's you know Arab women in the maternity ward as well. There's no none of that kind of separation. There's no separation in the workplace. Um, you know. Israelis tend not to have servants in their home, which South Africans to this day have servants in their home, which, uh, you know, again, it's it's legal, you know, but it does create a, a class system to some extent. Um, and it just, you know, it, it's just completely a warped view to call Israel an apartheid state. Now, when we talk about the Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel, right, they live either in the West Bank or in Gaza. In Gaza, they're completely self-governing. Um, and they're suffering there under a horrible religious tyrannical system, um, which I hope that they're freed from someday. But it's, you know, Israel, it, it was they were elected by 
in an open election that was observed by many international observers. So Israel can't really, you know, overthrow their government for them and say it's for your own good. You know, so that's not happening um, in the West Bank. You know, there's more of a dispute about the land. But the, as far as their civil everyday lives, they're governed by their own Palestinian authority, which, again, it's nowhere near as tyrannical as Gaza, but the leaders have refused to hold an election for what I believe is 13 years at this point. Uh, but again, Israel doesn't control the Palestinian self-governance. Now, for the security situation is not great in the West Bank, you know, and that tends to be more what you see in the news. There are checkpoints, um, you know, to get into Israeli areas, but it's not ethnically based. If you're an Arab and you live in Israel, you have equal civil rights. If you're a Palestinian who's not a citizen, yes, you have to get into it, pass a checkpoint to get through our country. Just like when I flew into uh, OR Tambo Airport, I had to go through customs and be checked. Now, the difference is that the Palestinians, many of them work in Israel, so they have to go through it every single day. I mean, imagine going through airport security levels of security every yeah. day. That's a huge pain in the neck. And I very much sympathize with them about that. But on the other hand, you know, countries do have the right to control who comes in and out. Sure. And and uh, the argument would be that the Israeli government is responding to uh, historical uh, violence, essentially. So yes, they, they, of course. they kind I mean, of been, don't have a choice. Right, right exactly. There's, uh, you know, I, I don't like to describe Israel as a place where there's constantly terrorism, because when you live your everyday life in Israel, and usually when you visit Israel, you don't feel like you're in danger. Mm. Um, and personal safety levels are very, very high in Israel. You know, the likelihood of you being attacked in the street in any way is very slim. But um, there is a higher terrorist threat in Israel than many, many places in the world. You know, there was there have been waves where there are attacks every day. Um, you know, luckily, we're not in a wave like that right now. And so that's what these security issues are about. That's that's what these checkpoints are about. And they've they're effective. You know, I, at the end of every year, um, you know, I, I report on the parliament. So at the end of every year, the, the security agencies report to the parliamentary uh, foreign affairs and defense committee sort of how many terrorist attacks they've blocked. And every year you know, I've been doing this job for six years. Every year it's in the hundreds. You know, so every day they're blocking, they're trying to block people from attacking Israelis. Um, you know, God willing, one day there'll be peace and then you'll have like just a normal border checkpoint, you know, it'll be two different countries. Have you ever watched that series on Netflix? I think it's called Fowder, uh, which is an Israeli yeah. series. Um, I, I've seen like an episode or two. Right. I, I tend to, when it comes to entertainment, I like things that are a little bit more uh, escapism. Oh, right, right. But uh, it's very popular. People really love it. Uh, I hear a lot of people abroad who love it. But what's interesting about it, so it's, a, it's an undercover Israeli uh, intelligence cell going to the West Bank to try to take out uh, known terrorists. And the, yeah. the question that's always asked a few times in each episode is, are you an Arab or are you a Jew? Because they keep going to the West Bank and walking around freely and going to all these places in the West Bank. And um, people can't tell the difference between an Israeli Jew and like a West Bank Arab. So yeah, it's well, trying to make a so point. That's another interesting thing. Um, half of the Jewish uh, people in Israel are from Middle Eastern and North African origins. And it's something that very few people know. But after the state of Israel was established, um, Hundreds of thousands of Jews were um, kicked out of the countries that they were living in, in the Middle East, 
Um, you know, and they, they were refugees and they came and they found a home in Israel. Um, but, you know, these are because the Jewish people were exiled from their homeland for so long, um, people tend to look like wherever their family had lived for the past few hundreds of years. And, um, you know, I, I can tell because I've grown up speaking Hebrew and I can tell the difference between sort of the accent and the way Jewish people speak and the way Arabs speak. But um, like my father, for example, who doesn't speak Hebrew well, he often can't tell. He doesn't know who's Jewish or who's Arab unless they have some sort of very clear indication on them, like a Jewish star necklace. So that was a a very well uh, and concise historical, uh, you know, just a historical story about what's happening today. But back to the present. Uh, So Donald Trump moves the embassy to Jerusalem. And apparently this is outrageous. And for someone like me who's agnostic on embassies, I suspect, (laughs) what, what is the relevance of this policy so Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel since 1949. Um, and at that time, at 1949, Jordan was occupying the West Bank and a large section of Jerusalem, including the ancient city of Jerusalem, which includes Israel's holiest site, the Temple Mount, um, and its supporting wall, the Western Wall, which is the more sort of famous site of prayer, because at the moment there's a mosque on Judea. Jerusalem's holiest site, so people don't pray there. Uh, Jewish people don't pray there, excuse me. Obviously, people pray there. Um, and um, after 1967, right, which was, you know, the Arab armies were preparing to attack Israel. Um, you know, Israel had very clear intelligence of that, and so Israel went and began this defensive war and won within six days. Um, Israel, Jewish people, once again, had access to their holiest sites, um, and they give free access to all religions and anybody wants to visit them. Um, but the, that sort of even more solidified for Israelis, like, yes, this is this is where it all comes from. The word Zionism, right? Zionism is basically Israeli patriotism, but it comes from Zion, which is Jerusalem. The whole source of our right to live in Israel is in Jerusalem. And the fact that the world didn't recognize that, um, and, you know, the reason they don't recognize that is because there's Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem and Christian holy sites as well, obviously, but um, the Muslims feel that their holy sites also give them a claim to the city. And so it was always sort of considered disputed and most of the world just did not recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, And so it was sort of an emotional, it was an emotional issue, I think, for Israelis more than anything else. Um, Because it's not like our lot, we live our lives differently just because the world didn't recognize our capital, you know, but, but it was a, it was sort of an upsetting, it was, it was a, a, almost a way of delegitimizing Israel's existence by not recognizing that Jerusalem is the capital. Um, And so it was a very major symbolic move for Israelis that Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He hasn't actually moved the embassy yet. He says he will by the end of next year, um, there'll be some form of embassy in Jerusalem. Um, But uh, you know, the Muslim world was very upset about it, although less so than than people expected. You know, there's so much else going on in, mainly in Syria, but also in Yemen, um, that it, it, it wasn't as much of like rioting across the Middle East as some people predicted. Mm. Uh, but there was some violence here in Israel, well, again, less than predicted. Well, they they kind of painted themselves into a corner, right? Because when over many years you... Um, get very upset about even the smallest thing. Um, uh, we don't go back to the negotiating table at peace talks or um, right. a, a, a new arms deal gets signed between 
Israel and the US or something like that. And then there's violence as a result of that. Or, you know, small things, small things happen and every, every small thing causes violence. I think like once you then paint it into that corner, everyone's like, Oh yeah, well, there's going to be some violence as a result of this. And it's almost like the norm. So it's hard to escalate up, um, in reaction. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I hate to, to make it sound like Israel is some sort of like hellscape where you can't go anywhere without there being violence. Like there, there was, there was an escalation. Yeah. Um, it was mostly in rock throwing and throwing of Molotov cocktails, which people like to downplay. Both of those things have killed people in the past. Uh, but on the other hand, it wasn't an escalation of, rioting across the board, stabbing, yeah. suicide, sure. attacks, things just, like that. So We have the same issue with South Africa, right? So South Africa's got a very high violent crime rate, I'm sure you are aware. Yes. Um, but, you, you know, the idea that you can't walk in the street or, you you know, if you drive, you are almost inevitably going to be hijacked is, is just not true. Um, those things happen. Um, but, uh, you know, people do get murdered and people do get robbed and all these things happen, but it's, uh, most of us go about our normal daily lives and, and get on with it. And, and we're, we're perfectly fine. Right. Actually. I mean, for me, what, when it comes to crime in South Africa, what really struck me was, um, you know, I, I was spending time in the, in the Jewish community in mm. Johannesburg because mm. that, that's where my husband's family was. Um, and in a lot of ways, it felt like the Jewish communities I'm familiar with in New Jersey, where there's a lot of Jews in the U.S., uh, but on the other hand, people had, you know, electrified fences and these advanced security systems. Um, and it was, uh, it's jarring because yeah. you're used to living in more open spaces, which, uh, at least, you know, the parts of Israel that I live in, <laughs> um, you know, you don't have that. And certainly in the U.S., we didn't have that. It, it is, it is pretty jarring. But on the other hand, you want to be prepared for the worst, I guess. Yeah. Um, just a matter of interest, uh, what is what is the general attitude towards Donald Trump in uh, in Israel? Uh, is he? It's very difficult to to tell these days what what the truth is because a lot of people uh, want to instinctively dislike the man, um, and and so it's hard to tell where people stand. What is the what's the Israeli sort of sentiment? Well, polling shows that Donald Trump is quite popular in Israel, and I think that that has to do with his policies towards Israel. Um, you know, Israelis on the whole were not so happy with Barack Obama's policies towards Israel. I think they, they felt also in general that um, America's role in the world and in the Middle East had diminished to some extent, and that um, sort of a, a, a less assertive America uh, also makes Israel look weaker. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to Donald Trump's foreign policy, it's made him very popular in Israel. And obviously now that he's recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, most Israelis are quite pleased with that move and also with things that they've done in the UN um, relating to Israel and the Palestinians. I think that if you were to go around the country and ask people about some of Donald Trump's sort of uh, domestic views, you know, um, on immigration and on other things, um, that maybe Israelis would have a more nuanced response. But overall, he's popular here. Um, I live in Tel Aviv, which is sort of the, the liberal, the very, very left-wing liberal city. Yeah, like San part. Francisco of the Middle East. Yeah, I guess. Um, something like, I mean, certainly because there's a huge gay community here. Um, and, you know, in Tel Aviv, people hate Donald Trump, um, you know, and, but that's anecdotal. Um, when you look at public opinion polls for the country, he, he's quite popular. 
But uh, to me, it appears that Israelis, a bit like Americans, they sort of like that strong man, political leader. Uh, you got one of your own at the moment, uh, Bibi. And, yeah. and there were, and there were quite a few before him as well. So I think, I think the, the, the archetype of that very strong leader, um, is, is actually quite popular in both countries too. Yeah, I agree. I do think that, um, Netanyahu has been compared to Trump a lot lately. And I, I don't think it's really a fair comparison because Netanyahu is, is a career politician. And I think that people, even people who dislike him, give him credit for just being a very brilliant, intelligent person. Um, and he, um, he's an excellent strategist. He's, he's changed. He's a, right. He's actually a strategist and he's changed a little bit in recent years, but he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't appealing to like the, the populist sort of lower common denominator the way Trump does. I mean, he's had his moments, but I, I think overall as a strategy and overall in his political career, like that's not how he's going to be remembered. Whereas I think that that's, that's the way Trump is, is viewed, you know, as even, even by his supporters as, as sort of like a, a great populist leader. Yeah, maybe true. Maybe true. Um, so uh, something that, that ties Israel and South Africa together. Uh, you are the greenest country in the Middle East, and um, apparently we have a drought in the Western Cape. And so you, you what you do is that you take the resource at hand, i.e. seawater, and then you, you magically change it to normal potable water, and it works. Yes. And also to be said, if those people who aren't aware, is that Israel is basically half of it is a desert, um, or more than half of it is a desert. Um, which has been made uh, arable by some very clever agriculture and engineering. And we get very little rain. Yeah. I mean, the amount of rain we get would probably be considered a drought in many, many places in the world, and that's like in a good year. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, I don't think we do any business with Israel because of the politics. Not only do you not do business with Israel, but in, in re I believe it was in 2016, there was supposed to be a major conference about water and water technology, and Israel was supposed to participate, and the conference was canceled because of the Israel boycott, and you know, the ANC doesn't want to do anything to cooperate with Israel. And I just think that it's, you know, as they say, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. You refuse to cooperate with Israel, which has the most advanced water technology in the world and is working out of experience. And, you know, Israel has shared that technology with California, for example, which has problems with droughts. Um, and so now South Africa, or at least the Cape Town area, is going to run out of water. You know, like um, if they had only agreed to work with Israel a little more, then maybe they wouldn't have had this problem or the problem wouldn't have been as bad. Um, I, I honestly think it's it's appalling, you know, that, you know, there, there could be other political disagreements, but water is a basic necessity for life and for a government not to be willing to to do everything possible to provide it to its people is just shocking to me. Well, it's normal for us. We're used to petty politicking um, being more important than basic human rights. But I think in 2016, we had the head of Hamas here. So maybe that's why. Um, he, yeah. Um, he arrived you know, without Hamas, much fanfare. Hamas has been friends with the ANC. Um, you know, the South Africa does harbor um, members of Hamas. And, and uh, I've read about training exercises being held in South Africa. Um, and just to for your listeners to clarify, like Hamas, is the government of Gaza. 
they are a theocratic Islamic organization um, that, I mean, they're a terrorist organization. They, they, they shoot rockets into civilian populations in Israel and they've been behind some of Israel's worst, um, the, some of the worst suicide bombings, killing Israelis. Um, and they're of course behind, you know, the rounds of sort of warfare in Gaza. Um, and, but, but beyond that, like the things that South Africa and the South African constitution, you know, that your country claims to stand for, they stand for the exact opposite. They don't believe in freedom for anyone, certainly not women, um, certainly not anyone who doesn't believe in their strict interpretation of Islam. Um, and, and these are the people that are being, you know, harbored and, and cooperated with in South Africa. These are the supposed freedom fighters, you know, people who people who bomb churches and who, you know, canceled their marathon because it's immodest for women to run. You know, and that's just sort of a, a silly example, but I think it's very telling. Yeah, it, it, certainly it, it, it is. Um, it, it's interesting, you, you alluded to it earlier, there do seem to be some changes happening in the Middle East in terms of political relationships, which would have seemed impossible a decade ago, for example. So it does seem, at the moment at least, that Saudi Arabia, for example, seems to be getting a little bit friendlier with Israel. I mean, I wouldn't say they're the best of, best of friends just yet. But uh, there seems to be some opening up of relationship uh, there. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's sort of mostly under the table, so to speak. Like, there's no official diplomatic ties between the countries still. But they there's definitely a, a sort of the enemy of the of my enemy is my friend situation, where both see Iran as a major adversary. Um, and so they're working, working on things like uh, intelligence sharing and cooperating in other ways. Um, and this has sort of made the Saudis try to push the Palestinians to, to come to the table and to be a little bit more cooperative, although it's not really worked yet. The Palestinians refuse to speak to Israel, you know, so at least to, to, to try to negotiate some sort of final The, the peace process is currently completely stalled. Is that, is that fair to say? It's it's fair to say. At the same time, this week Israel's finance minister met with um, uh, a bunch of members of the Palestinian Authority, the prime minister, the economics minister, and others. Um, and so, the, on the one hand, the peace process is stalled. On the other hand, sort of the projects that allow for coexistence and that, in, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, is at least help encourage some form of of calm, if not total peace, are still happening, are still on the table. Um, you know, there's a concept in Israel of economic peace, which is that um, Israel does a lot to help the Palestinians um, sort of quality of living and their economy. Um, and I, you know, people who have better lives have less to lose. So there is some self-interest here for Israel. Um, but it definitely helped you know many many palestinians work in israel and they make more money here than they would they, they get paid they have to be paid at least the israeli minimum wage which is much higher than the palestinian authority minimum wage um and there's a lot of other forms of economic cooperation on the government level um, which at least helps which at least helps us sort of coexist side by side with each other yeah, it's interesting. Um, you talk about a minimum wage. Uh, what, what? So Israel has minimum wage. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, so where 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 is Israel actually politically? I mean, what is the you know what is the 
the guiding sort of political nature of the government. I mean, in South Africa, we could basically say we're a, we're a socialist state, essentially. Uh, um, I did a small calculation the other day. Uh, 17 million people in this country receive grants. Um, about three and a half million are employed by government. That's 20.5 million. There's 55 million people in the country, but about 15 million of those are children. So more than 50% of our country are employed by the government or paid by the government. Um, <laughs> to wow. survive. So I think we've achieved better there. than, better than there. the Soviet yeah. Union, um, you know, in terms of those numbers. But, um, what, what is, you know, would you say it's a so-called social democracy or, um, what? Yeah, I think that Israel is, is, is a social democracy. Um, you know, for me coming from the U.S., I'm like, oh, in Israel, they're such socialists, but they're, <laughs> they're really not. I mean, it's not like, not even the Nordic model, let alone the South African model. Um, but, uh, you know, they, we have the sort of basic social welfare system in place. We have a, a very, very excellent healthcare system and it's socialized, um, you know, and free public schools. Um, and there is welfare for people who are not able to support themselves and for disabled people, which is now a huge, huge political issue in Israel that they want to raise the disability benefits. And should it be done gradually? Should it be done right away? But either way, I think it's, it's important. You know, I, it's a good thing that people who are disabled and not able to really make a living, like those people definitely need a safety net. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a lot being done to open up the markets in Israel, um, which are, you know, we're a small country. So it creates a lot of monopolies in a lot of manufacturing areas, uh, you know, in food, um, also in media, you know, in, in the just different television channels and film production companies. It's just such a small country that it creates a situation where you only have like two or three options. Um, and the government's constantly trying to sort of open things up, make them freer, um, allow more imports to lower prices and things like that. Um, so it's it's a social Democrat country under Netanyahu. Um, they're definitely trying to lead more and more towards the free market. It's not always easy because um, Israel was built sort of on a, a very socialist basis. The country, the the party that founded the country and ran it for its first twenty nine years, you know, because from nineteen forty eight to nineteen seventy seven, the left won. All the elections, yeah. and, 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 and it was off. founded on on kibbutzim, which basically is um, it's in sort the of beginning. A, 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 it's a misconception because okay. uh, a very small perception of a, a very small percentage of Israelis lived in kibbutzim at at any time, including when the country was founded. Um, but but certainly when the country was founded, the kibbutzim were seen as the ideal, even yeah. if it wasn't yeah. actually that, that many people. Almost like a social there. commune. Everyone works right. for everyone it was, else. It was a sort of social economy. Right. Everyone worked for everyone else. They worked together. They sort of shared property and they worked together on the farms and things like that. And, and those were the, yeah, they were seen as the idealists of Israel. Um, so starting in 1977, the market started to become more open. And, and Netanyahu is a huge, um, I mean, a capitalist, right? Like yeah. He's a huge believer well, in the open market being very important and, and shrinking the government by a lot. Um, and he has mixed success because it's sometimes it's popular and sometimes it's not. Mm. It really depends on the issue. Yeah. Um, but but Netanyahu is considered an economic whiz in Israel. He was our um, our finance minister in 2003, which was the height of the Intifada, which was, you know, a, a, it means struggle in Arabic. And it was, you know, just Palestinian suicide bombings and, and hundreds of Israelis being killed. Um, and he managed to really keep Israel's economy afloat 
at a time when there was a security crisis. And so people really do consider him to be a whiz, even though policy by policy, there are mixed sort of reactions. Feelings. But but Israel yeah. has, has done particularly well embracing the so-called free market. Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of um, the I number of Israel listings tries. in on the New York Stock Exchange uh, and and those 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 exchanges and the number of tech companies in Israel. I mean, a lot of our technology yes. we we owe to Israel. Uh, everything from a lot of the tech in your cell phone, voicemail, uh, ways. Uh, <laughs> these, yeah, are, Israel, these are these are Israeli inventions. A, Israel is, is the technological powerhouse. I mean, basically number two in the world after the U.S. and um, and a huge amount of Israeli startups get sold to the to the to American companies to big companies like Google, um, and and it's definitely a huge thing. I mean, if we're talking about the broader economic picture, um, it doesn't it doesn't trickle down to the greater sort of um, the the greater population as much as people would like it to. And so there's work being done to try to sort of improve that situation and try to figure out how you know, how to really create more jobs for more people through that. But um, there's definitely something to be said about Israeli ingenuity and Israeli success in the in business on the world stage. I mean, it's for such a small country to have such a presence in, in not just the tech industry, but in science. Biotech is a huge thing. Israeli water technology has, you know, desalination, taking water from the sea and making it, you know, drinkable water is, is new. But the drip irrigation, Israel's ability to farm in the desert has been around since, I believe, the 1950s. Um, and so Israel's been a huge uh, leader in agricultural technology for decades as well. Um, yeah, that, that, you know, and I think, I think that that's, uh, for me, I've always felt that that's actual, the actual strength is the economic strength. Um, I think it's very hard to, uh, and and I suppose that whole BDS campaign kind of knows that in some respects. If you can hamstring Israel from a economic perspective, then that's actually where 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 you can create real damage. Right, but they they actually can't. I mean, BDS's successes are few and far between, and they yeah. tend to just be in well, they, academia. You know, Roger Waters won't come who, play a concert. It's not the end of the world. Uh, he's right, not the best exactly, part of Pink Floyd anyway. Exactly. They're not really hurting our economy in any kind of perceptible, perceivable way. Yeah. You know, it's not – they're not really a factor in the Israeli economy. Um, but, but you know, they, they bother Israelis. They get on Israelis' nerves. And um, there there is a concern that over time, you know, it, it could hurt. But as far as like, you know, we have a, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, his name is Gilad Erdan, and he's investing sort of in the fight against the delegitimization and boycotting of Israel. Um, and I interviewed him, and one time he said Israelis, you know, BDS was around for more than a decade at that point. I think I interviewed in 2016 about this. Um, so the BDS had been around for 11 years at that point. And he said for years and years it was around. There was this big international campaign and Israelis didn't know anything about it. They didn't care about it until it hit two things, their cell phones and soccer. So soccer being that um, the Palestinians petitioned FIFA against Israel. They wanted Israel sort of kicked out of the league, which they didn't succeed. And cell phones being this, this cell phone company, Orange, they're they're like international. I think they're they're yeah. based in Europe, but they're yeah. I don't know if you have it in South Africa. Yeah, the or not, French company, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they wanted to. They, their um, CEO made sort of some sort of comment of like, yeah, we'd like to pull out of Israel, but we're still under contract. 
Um, and even though the, the, the like renewal of the contract was actually being negotiated, in the end, the Israeli sort of local franchise of Orange, they were like, no, after you say something like that, we don't want to be called Orange anymore. No one's going to buy our products. So it was sort of a reverse boycott in the end. It wasn't even that Orange boycotted Israel. It was that Israel was like, well, we don't like you guys. <laughs> um, and so now they have a different name in Israel, which is Partner. Um, so, but those were the two times that Israelis paid attention really to the boycotts, you know, other than that, it's like not, not a huge thing. It's a little bit more when you talk about the communities in Judea and Samaria, otherwise known as settlements in the West Bank, um, they have more of an issue, um, but they're not the center of the Israeli economy. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's true. So, um, I actually want to talk about anti-Semitism, generally speaking. So there, there were a few articles. Yes. I'm French. I, I was I was born there and visit often. Uh-huh. Um, there were a few articles in France about the mass exodus of French Jews from the capital city of Paris. Um, yeah. D- due to anti-Semitism. Yeah. And apparently they, they moved to Israel or, or they moved elsewhere. They just... I'm not sure where exactly they went, but apparently there's, yeah, a, there's England a, is also popular. Oh, England. All oh, right, but there's yeah. this growing story. I, I don't know if it's true or not of of growing anti-Semitism in Europe, and some wish to blame the immigrant crisis for that because most of the immigrants are not uh, well are, are Muslim. Um, yeah. Has it has has there been an impact on Israel in terms of immigration from Jews from Europe into Israel the past one or two years? Yeah, I mean, there's been thousands of Jews coming, many from France. There's also been many from Ukraine because it's a war zone, uh, has been for a while. Well, parts of Ukraine. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to do to them what people do in Israel. Apparently, there are large parts of Ukraine where you don't feel like you're at war. But um, there are many who are coming from those countries in recent years. Um, and I've, I've been to England a couple times in the past few months, and people there have told me that they're starting to sort of prepare contingency plans. Because when they look at Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, which has, you know, a huge anti-Semitism problem that the leader of the party himself barely and unsatisfactorily addresses, um, people in England are starting to be worried, too. Um, but as far as inside Israel, Israelis are very supportive and happy to accept these people. Um, and certainly, um, you know, the, the French immigrants, they tend to be sort of educated people who can get jobs and, and contribute well to the country. Um, and um, so it, it's not a problem. I mean, the French people, the, the immigrants themselves, they do have sort of some absorption issues. Um, there are sort of some issues that the school system is different. They're not used to it. Um, and so I've, I've read sort of complaints from them, but on the whole, it's not some sort of, it's, it's not like an issue in Israel, you know, in Israel, yeah. um, Israel is here for all Jews, um, you know, and I think that the ideal is for pe- for Jewish people to move to Israel because they feel connected and they want to live in Israel. But if they're moving to Israel because they feel like they don't have another choice, Israel is still welcoming them. Right, right. Do you think that, like Jeremy Corbyn, he says, he says he's not anti-Semitic, he's anti-Zionist. So he doesn't like Israel, but he doesn't mind Jews. Do you think that distinction holds any water? Not, not specifically for Corbyn, but for people who do make that distinction. Right. I don't think that distinction holds any water because, um, 
any argument explaining why you would be, there's no logical argument why you would be anti-Zionist as opposed to anti any other country. People are like, well, why do the Jewish people deserve their own state? Why should there be a religion-based state? I don't know. Why don't you ask the dozens of Muslim countries around the world why they get their own states? You know, uh, or most of Europe, many, many states in Europe have an official religion that's some form of Christianity. Um, You know, so that doesn't hold water. Um, You know, things like that. Like when you when you say you're anti-Zionist, you're saying that you're anti-Israel, right? Zionism uh, began as the movement to establish a Jewish state, uh, and today, basically, it, Zionism just means you you think Israel should exist, right? So um, you're singling out the one Jewish country out of all the countries of the world for criticism. That strikes me as you're singling out Jews as the one group of people in the world for criticism. And so it's fine to criticize Israel. It's even fine to be a person who says, I'm very touched. You know, I'm I'm, I'm very sort of taken by the problems in Israel and I want to focus my attention on Israel. But when you say, I'm only anti the existence of Israel, but I'm not anti the existence of any other country in the world, then you have a problem and that problem is called anti-Semitism. Yeah, and you know what does Israel make out of the and 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 citizens make out of the singling out of Israel at the UN? I I don't know the statistics. Uh, I invite listeners to follow uh, UN Human Rights uh, UN UN Watch, I think it is, um, which is quite a good uh, yeah, organization. I, I um, but you know, Israel that, will be. I'm not a hundred percent sure about yeah. this, but I, I'm, I think that there are more. The UN Human Rights Council has more resolutions condemning Israel than any other country in the world combined. Yes, yeah. Israel, There's something like seventy something religion, against Israel. Expression, sure. uh, equal civil rights. You know, gays can live freely. Um, you know, all of these things in Israel. You know, and it's Israel that's being condemned, not like, you know, China and Iran that execute more people than anywhere else in the world or Saudi Arabia, where, you know, women have to basically cover every inch of their bodies and they only recently were allowed to drive. And, you know, it's, it's just completely absurd. The, the level of human rights violations happening all around the world, you know, and the things that people should be worried about are, are massive. And yet there's a singular focus on Israel. And I'm not even saying Israel is perfect. There are things that you could criticize Israel for a hundred percent, you know, and even the UN Rights Council can, can criticize Israel, but to criticize Israel more than everyone else combined just shows that there's a problem. Yeah. So uh, Israel did react to this because I think, uh, you know, UNESCO turned around, which is the UN sort of cultural body, um, turned yeah. around and said something to the effect of, I think it was uh, Jerusalem and other sites, which are traditionally holy to Jews. And I mean, these are historical Facts that you know there are, there have been sites. For example, they've been visited for three, four thousand years by by, by Jewish people, um, right. and have been held as as holy. UNESCO turned around and said, "Well, they aren't specifically Jewish. These sites, you know, we 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 kind of going to bend on them." And Israel's sort of severed ties with UNESCO. Said we're we're not really interested in you anymore. Um, is is there a negative perception of the UN in Israel? Do people just not care? Is it is it a case of Israel just gets on with it? <coughs> Are you okay there? Yeah, sorry about that. No problem. Um, uh, yeah, the UN is viewed very, very negatively in Israel. Um, the, the abbreviation for UN in Hebrew is UM, and there's a famous quote from David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, UM Shmum. 
as in like UN schmuen, like who cares about them? Um, because they just like the, the issue really in the UN is that it's one country, one vote. And there are so many countries that are just automatically anti-Israel, basically almost every Muslim country, like, you know, the exception being like Azerbaijan. Um, and, um, you know, they automatically vote against and then they have pressure on a lot of other countries, you know, for, for decades, they had pressures on countries in Africa. Um, and so those people also automatically vote against Israel. And it was just, it's just like, it's the system where, and I, I don't really know how to fix it, but it's the system where Israel can't win and Israelis know that. So they just completely disregard the UN as a corrupt institution. Has there been a, 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 a well-crafted, balanced analysis of Israel that criticizes it that actually makes sense from these countries? Or is it really just pettiness? At the In the UN, day? usually not. In the right. UN, it's usually people who are just like pontificating and trying to, you know, have a good video to put on the news in their home country. Um, but in life in general, yeah, there, there are intelligent people who have intelligent criticisms of Israel, both of Israel's presence in the West Bank um, and, and, you know, all kinds of things. That, and, you know, I've, I've spoken to people and I, I, I'm always glad to hear from people who are willing to make an intelligent sort of structured argument that's not about ad hominem attacks or racism. And I think that that exists in the Israel debate, but uh, there's also things also get very heated and there's a lot of comments that I think are just, you know, certainly not helping the side of the people who are criticizing Israel because it, they just come off to me at least as, as racist, by the way, often racist against the Palestinians too, because they're often treated as people who have no agency like that they have no control over what happens in their own lives or the actions that they take, you know? And I find that to be completely racist as though these sort of um, Europeans who parachute in for a summer to volunteer at, in a Palestinian town, they know what's best, but the Palestinians don't actually know how to do anything themselves. Like I, I find that repugnant. Um, but getting back to your question, um, but, uh, sorry, so you know, I, I'm not example, here to say every, yeah. Like, like someone like Norman Finkelstein, who is a, yeah. an academic, uh, who is virulently opposed to, to Israel. And I've, I've seen and read some of his stuff. Some of his stuff is actually quite good in terms of analysis, but he does become a bit hyperbolic. But like, is he considered yeah. a good critic? I don't think, I don't think that Finkelstein is like the smartest, like the, the the person that I would consider to be the like reasonable critic because he veers into, you know, he has a whole book called like the Holocaust industry. He veers yeah. into anti-Jewish conspiracy theories. He knows how to write them well in an academic language, but there's a reason that he can't get a job in academia because he veers into conspiracy theories. I would say there are people like Peter Beinart, for example, um, who's very critical, critic, who's very critical of Israel Um and but I think that he's someone who you can talk to without yeah. him being like, let's blame all the Jews. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, he himself is Jewish, um, you know. And so even though I, I disagree with a lot of things he said and, and I can poke logical holes in a lot of his arguments, you know, he's someone who I respect, who I would talk to, you know. That's, that's not yeah. to say that if Nora Finkelstein called me up one day, I would hang up in his face. But 
uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't consider it a good use uh, of my time. Noam Chomsky is another one who, who who comes to mind as well. He's also quite... yeah. I the, what I what I do respect about Finkelstein and Chomsky is that they don't they don't believe in boycotting Israel because they think that you don't get anywhere with boycotts. And I I agree with that. Um, I I know that for South Africans, that's South Africans sort of believe in the power of boycott, um, but the you know, I think that if you know the history, even in South Africa, boycott isn't the only thing that brought progress along. Sure, sure. No, that's uh, that that is absolutely the case. Um, well, um, just a matter of interest. Uh, what's uh, what's the news this week in Israel? What's uh, what makes news in 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 Israel? You know, we've uh, we've got our president. We're not sure if our president's staying or not. I've heard in the last uh, seven days, uh, we've had three deadlines that he's leaving, and he hasn't left yet. So that's our news. Yeah. What, what makes news in on a day to day basis? Um, well, the big news in Israel this week. There are a lot of different things. First of all, there's some investigations into allegations of corruption by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Oh, been similar to us, for a then. long time. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. If, uh, I don't know if it's at the same level. Yeah, he didn't, but, um, he didn't build a house for hundreds of millions, but certainly. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, so the, that makes the news. There's a lot of sort of leaks from the police investigations, and people think it might actually be wrapping up soon. So people are talking about that a lot. There's also a leaked tape of Netanyahu's wife. And this is like what really weird, but it was big in the news this week. It's like nine. If the tape is like nine years old, I don't know why it leaked now. It's of her shouting at a worker. Okay. Um, and part of it, part of it was that she was talking about how intelligent and educated she is. And it was like, I'm a psychologist. I have a BA and an MA. And um, it's become this like sort of humorous catchphrase in Israel <laughs> where people are like, BA, MA. <laughs> um, people, people like to mock Netanyahu's wife, which I often think is unfair. But she, uh, from people who have encountered it firsthand, she does have a temper. Um, so that, that's so she, she kind of brings it on herself. I don't think she brings it on herself because I think it's dis- there's a disproportionate focus. Like yeah. she's not a person who's actually important to the policies of Israel. And so like, is that really in the public interest to hear a tape of her yelling at someone? Um, but that's the media does it anyway. It's amazing um, the tapes then, you can find many years later. Yeah, exactly. Lots of politicians getting caught out. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually been a lot of that recently. And there's a lot of sort of people secretly recording things. Um, and uh, a, on a more serious note, a very big story um, coming out of Poland this week is that Poland, um, they're, yes, work- yeah, they're working on a bill that makes it uh, illegal and, you know, said with a three year jail uh, with up to a three year jail sentence um, to say publicly that Poland was in any way complicit with um, Nazi Germany's crimes. Yeah. You're you know, not allowed to say humanity. that there were Polish concentration camps, of which there were right. several. You can't use the phrase Polish death camps, which the Poles hate. Um, so it's a, it's a ban on free speech, basically. I mean, it's it's a form of censorship. There's two sort of, I think, sort of major people who believe that there should be free speech. There are two sort of schools of thought. There's the American school of thought where it's almost absolute and then there's more of the european school of thought where there are certain kinds of offensive speech that they can ban there's incitement um you know holocaust denials banned in most of europe um so um 
and Holocaust denial is banned in Israel as well. So there's sort of two different ideas of what free speech means. I tend to ascribe more to the American one. Right? I don't want the government telling me yeah. what to say or not say. So I, I found the Polish thing very upsetting. But Israelis also found it upsetting across the board because, you know, even though the Germans built the concentration camps, they are all in Poland, first of all. Like, you, you know, you could say they're Polish geographically. But also they're... Um, were many, many Poles before, during, and after the Holocaust who, you know, attacked Jews, um, you know, or turned them into the Nazis. You know, they, they, let's just say Poland does not have a very good reputation among Jewish people around the world. So having written about this issue, um, I, I actually received like a deluge of comments on social media from Polish people. And there are some points to be made. There were, um, six, more than 6,000 Polish people recognized as righteous among the nations by Yad Vashem, which means that they, these are people who saved Jews, and also that there was no Polish government that cooperated with the Nazis. It's not like, you know, in France that there was like a local government that was working mm-hmm. with the Nazis. But on the other hand, um, histor- it's a historic fact that before, during, after the Holocaust, there were pogroms by Polish people. You know, there were Polish people who turned Israel, uh, sorry, not Israel, who turned Jews into the Nazis. Um, and so Israelis, and I think, and many Jews outside of Israel, I mean, people have contacted me about it, um, are very upset because they feel like this is going to stifle discussion of the historic facts of the Holocaust. You know, we mm-hmm. say never forget and this is a, a law that that is is basically saying you must forget part of this yeah um and so really across the board politically um you know from the far left to the far right including israeli arabs everybody in israel was outraged by this um and the government was trying to negotiate with the polish government to find some sort of version that that both sides could live with but in the meantime the senate um the Polish Senate passed the bill anyway. Um, so at least there's one part of the Polish democracy that's working well, which is separation of powers, right? Yeah. But uh, their protection of freedom of speech is not, apparently not, not, the not best. Yeah, leaves much to be desired. Okay. Well, hopefully that's something that can get sorted out. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, technology lasted almost until the end there. Uh, thank you yeah. so much for, for joining us. We, we really do appreciate it. Um, where can people find right. you? Um, the best place to find me is on Twitter at Lahav Harkov. Um, you know, no space or anything. Yeah. Um, and I try to answer people's questions. So if you have questions about Israel, I'd be happy to talk. That's awesome. Lahav Harkov, uh, journalist at the Jerusalem Post. And, uh, thanks for all that insight on Israel. Those of you who've, uh, have no knowledge of it, never been there or have only read certain things in the media. Now that's another perspective and, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Cheers, eh? All right, end of another show. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support it, you can support us on Patreon. You can find Ramon on, on Twitter at Roman Kavanagh, myself at Jonathan underscore wit. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.